solo and group clinicians alike are buzzing about Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals. With live customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and an extensive feature library, Therapy Notes is sure to streamline your workflow, giving you time to care more and worry less. Try them for two months free using promo code MODERN today. Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast about all things therapists and the things that we do, the things that we don't do, the things that we try to do. And today we are... <laughs> Katie's looking at me like this is the the meander talking about sometimes I have really good intros to episodes and sometimes this is where we sit so there we go and maybe in the spirit of this episode how how ready are we for this to be our greatest episode ever after (laughs) the very phenomenal intro that we had We're, we're here talking about motivational interviewing with one of our Therapy Reimagined 2021 speakers, Hillary Bolter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. And you're modeling what it is that you're supporting listeners in, which is being your real self and being okay with that. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take that. Yes, that is exactly what we're doing. So the first thing that we always ask our guests, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? My name is Hillary Bolter. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm a trainer in motivational interviewing. So essentially, I believe that I help cultivate effective helping professionals through motivational interviewing. So we were talking right before we started recording, and Hillary asked us you know, what our experience with motivational interviewing is. And I'll be honest that I've done a a number of courses on motivational interviewing and seen a lot of very thick books on motivational interviewing in both teaching uh, back when I was writing licensing test questions. And a lot of my reaction to this has just been, this just makes sense. Why is this so complex when this this could really be done in just a couple of pages? But... (laughs) So you're saying people are writing too much. I am saying <laughs> that this is something where I, I I think very naturally fall into a lot of the principles and aspects of this. And I don't understand why it's so complicated to so many other people all of the time. But apparently people make some mistakes in this. I probably do too. But what kinds of mistakes do you see people making with motivational interviewing or potentially what am I bypassing by not reading those very thick books that are things that can help our listeners maybe not make those same mistakes? Right. And your experience is really similar for many people. They will say, hey, this motivational interviewing stuff, it makes sense. It feels intuitive. There is like this level of recognizing 
the essence of MI and how, yeah, we want to be doing that or I am doing that, right? So there is that resonance that people feel. Motivational interviewing is simple, but not easy. So in that simple way, the essence is pretty simple and I can describe it more and kind of define it for you. However, practitioners, we find it really hard to actually implement the full kind of gamut of what motivational interviewing has to offer us, such as withholding that writing reflex. That is really hard for people to do across the board. Are you all familiar with that term, writing reflex? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. I had like, like a, a lunch, a lunch and learn <laughs> on motivational interviewing. I was like, this is amazing. I want to do this. And subsequently did not do anything about that. So yes. tell me everything. I want to know everything. <laughs> tell about you everything. I will give you the download. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, Katie, your experience is very common as well, that people along the way have been exposed to MI, like a lunch and learn or a day training, or it was mentioned in a class in graduate school. You know, MI has been around for nearly 40 years. And so it's a buzzword. We've all heard it. We know it's evidence-based and most people think they're doing it or using it to some extent. And I think in order to know if we're using it or not, we need to really know what it means and what what it means to be doing MI, <laughs> air quotes, doing MI, yes. using MI. And I'll, I'll, I'll go back and explain the writing reflex because I think that is one of the things that's, that's hard for people to kind of pull back or rein in. And the writing reflex, as defined in MI, is that tendency for helping professionals to persuade or convince others who are ambivalent about change. So say we have a client who's like, I know I should, but you know, they're in that place of ambivalence about change. We have a tendency to want to kind of get on the side of change argument. Like, yeah, that's a great change to make. I could totally see how that would be helpful for you. Or have you thought about doing this to help you with that change? That's the writing reflex at work where we have that instinctual response as helping professionals to help people change by helping convince them of the need to change. So that's what that is. And when we are using motivational interviewing, we're staying out of that writing reflex because we are falling back on this belief and the skill set that comes with it of cultivating and evoking from the client. So rather than imparting that information about change or persuasion to change, we're evoking their motivation for change. And here I thought you were going to say that the mistake that most people make with motivational interviewing is just labeling anybody who's resistance as being in the pre-contemplative stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, the the pre-contemplative comment trap. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, many people affiliate, associate the stages of change with motivational interviewing. They are, are different. They, the, the fun fact, they were presented at the same addiction conference back in the early 1980s. So people often associate them together and they go really well together because motivational interviewing is designed to help someone resolve their ambivalence about change. So we're working with people in that contemplative stage of change. I should, but, you know, there's that ambivalence, the strength on both sides of change. MI is really useful for folks in pre-contemplative as well, because it gives us some tools to engage with them and join with them and explore what they are willing to change in that moment. So confusing the two is one of the common kind of mistakes like of, oh yeah, they're the same, or you have to know one to use the other. 
they're helpful to look at. I think of the stages of change as such a helpful assessment tool for us in looking at client readiness. And it can also help us inform when I'm using MI and when not to, because MI is used to help people, you know, move along the stages, resolve that ambivalence, pre-contemplative, contemplative stages of change. So now I'm realizing that I actually have learned less about MI because I think in the two-hour training, I think there was at least 45 minutes on the stages of change. So what (laughs) does using MI really mean? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What does it really mean? So I, I, sometimes in my mind, I picture very visual in my mind, like a picture, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs triangle. You know, we've got mm. the base of the triangle. So I'm going to, I'm going to create a hierarchy of motivational interviewing triangle for us sure. to conceptualize Sounds MI. Good. At the base of the MI triangle is the spirit of MI. And the spirit of MI, woo, what is that? I know. I was like, <laughs> that sounds really fancy. You got the spirit. It's the attitude that we bring to our clients. So there are four elements of spirit and motivational interviewing. And this, again, this attitude that we bring to our work. And that is empathy. That is collaboration. That's like, hey, there's two experts in the room. I have expertise as your provider. You have expertise in your life and wisdom. You know best what's going to work or not work for you, right? So it's this attitude that together we can put our expertise together and help support you in change, right? It's not that I'm the expert and you're the patient, right? Together. So collaborative attitude evocation, which is I'm going to learn about my client from my client and pull out their motivations, their ideas. And those are in fact more important than my ideas for them. And we have acceptance and compassion, right? This compassion for our client, the Carl Rogers, unconditional positive regard. People are doing the best they can, unconditional, yeah, positive beliefs. So that's the base of the triangle, this spirit, this attitude that we bring. And I think that's what many listeners and probably you all as well connect to. You're like, yeah, I have that spirit. I hold that belief when I'm working with my clients in session, right? So that's the base of the triangle. How does that land for you all? Exactly. I'm like, okay, I do that, except what you already told me about the writing impulse. And I think I do that too. So (laughs) more to learn still. (laughs) Yes. Right. So that spirit resonates and makes sense. The attitude that we bring to the clients. The next sort of notch into that triangle of motivational interviewing is the ORS skills. So O-A-R-S. Are you all familiar with those? You're like, yeah, I've heard of that. Nope. Not even a little bit. I love it. Honesty. (laughs) So the ORS stand for open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And the OR skills are essentially the micro skills of motivational interviewing. They are the how we get there. We get, we guide conversation by asking more open-ended questions than closed, by providing affirmations that highlight strengths and abilities and efforts that we see our clients making. We do a lot of reflections, reflective listening, and we provide summaries that help consolidate and guide the conversation. So many people will say, oh, yeah, I do that stuff, too. I ask questions and I affirm and I reflect and I summarize. Yes, exactly. Yep. yep. Still with you. So so except for knowing about this writing reflex, I am totally doing motivational interviewing. Yes. So the tip of the triangle is this change talk component. 
Okay. This is probably where I'm going to go wrong here. So <laughs> what, what does this include? Yes. So the, one of the things we know from change research is that the more people talk about change, the more likely they are to change. And so our task when we're using motivational interviewing is to guide the conversation in a way that is going to help our clients talk more about change, why they want to make that change, how they might want to make that change, what values do they have that are really guiding that change, what strengths do they have that they're going to utilize when they're making that change. And so this, this change talk component of MI is this awareness of the need to pay attention to our client's change language, which is their why change, their motivation for change, versus their sustained talk language, which is like the why not. That's the other side of ambivalence. So we pay attention to that change talk language, and we are doing some specific ways, methods to cultivate and strengthen change talk over the course of an interview. Notes not only combines billing, scheduling, and notes into one easy-to-use software, they now also offer group telehealth, up to 15 clients in a group session at a time, and secure messaging features. And with their 24-7 customer service, they're ready to assist you no matter where your practice takes you. Therapy Notes allows you to do it all. Whether you're a solo clinician or part of a group practice, you'll have all the tools for success at your fingertips with Therapy Notes. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. And this seems to be the part that I think a lot of people can kind of over rely on certain kinds of questions here. Mm -hmm. I, I hear, you know, some clients totally not mine that are like, you're asking too many scaling questions, you know, that you're just mm -hmm. making me ask, you know, number and number questions. And you talked about kind of the soft skills with that middle part of the pyramid mm -hmm. here. This is where some of those really good clinical skills come out is in kind of this tip of the triangle and eliciting change talk. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. And you named scaling questions. That's one of the tools of MI. I had a participant in a training recently who was a physician's assistant and she she said, oh, you know, I've taken trainings in MI before, but it felt too tools focused. It felt like, here, use these scaling questions. And it felt like kind of forced to her, like she was supposed to use these particular techniques. And she took a much longer training with me, a little longer than the lunch and learn. And really, that's when it all kind of came together. These pieces of the, how do I practice this attitude and spirit? How do I use the OR skills to selectively guide the conversation towards a specific change. And we integrate those, those tools like scaling questions as well as many other tools in a way that really helps our clients talk themselves into the change instead of relying upon that kind of traditional advice giving, information giving, or writing reflex, persuading, kind of getting on the bandwagon of, yeah, here's why you should change. Which when somebody's truly ambivalent and we start to argue for change, their tendency is to argue against change. Yeah. And I'm imagining we can all sort of think about those clients that we work with or who have worked with who are like, I don't know, I should. And we start saying, you know, sort of arguing and supporting the change side. They tend to say, but, mm -hmm. but, but, but. And yeah, that's the opposite. Then eliciting the, the reasons why they're still ambivalent. Exactly. Which strengthens that not change side. And so in motivational interviewing, one of my cues to myself of like, oh, I need to remember to get back into my MI skills is when I'm arguing for change and my client is arguing against it. 
That's the exact opposite of where we're going with MI, which is where we're cultivating this conversation to support the client's motivation and argument for change. I think the time when I am most likely to argue for change is when I see a really unhealthy behavior, whether it's dangerous relationships, dangerous coping strategies, those types of things. How do you get to a place where you can kind of safely be in that space of helping them make the decision and kind of talk themselves into change while also not appearing to collude with really dangerous or unhealthy behaviors? Because as a professional, if I say, sure, you know, yeah, let's, let's figure out, you know, how do you decide whether you're going to cut or not? Let's keep you cutting, like, you know, whatever it is, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's something where how do you hold both of those things when trying to stay away from arguing for the healthy behavior? Because I that's where I struggle the most. Like most mm-hmm. of the time I'm like, oh, well, how do you make a decision? And what would make the difference there? And, you know, those kinds of things. Whereas mm-hmm. when someone's doing something that's really dangerous, it is so hard for me to, you know, not something that's immediately life-threatening or thing I would need to report, like certainly not that, but like something that feels very dangerous if it doesn't change within the next period of time. How do you, mm-hmm. what, what are your recommendations there? Right. When you feel some urgency mm-hmm. beyond that, uh, for that change, and you want that to happen soon, you know, this question is a good one and it makes me pause to take a step back to consider the style of communication that we're in at any given moment with a client and how we learn to make some intentional choices around that. And so Stephen Rolnick, the co-creator of MI, has identified three styles of communication. There's the following style, there's the guiding style, and there's the directing style. And there are times as a clinician where we are choosing consciously to follow the clients, like what, you know, in whatever they're wanting to talk about, or we're following them if they're ambivalent about something like whether to have a second child or not, whether to, you know, things that's clearly, we're not going to weigh in on that. We're going to follow. Yes. Then there are times when we are directive and we make a conscious clinical choice to be more directive in that. Like we have consent to give, you know, to get, say this, we need consent for this, or this is information that I need to provide to you. That's more directive. And then there's times where we make a decision to be sort of in between the two of those, which is guiding a guiding and motivational interviewing is a guiding style of communication. And so in the cases of some more sort of scary or alarming behaviors, we may need to make a conscious clinical choice to move into a more directive style of communication. We may be able to stay in that guiding style of communication, join with our client, clarify what that goal is, evoke from them what motivation they might have. Why might they want to decrease or stop the cutting? How is what they're doing problematic for them? Reflect that to them so they're hearing themselves speak, you know, and hearing their wisdom, their inner wisdom that we're drawing out. <laughs> and, and then we may tool in motivational interviewing is called elicit, provide, elicit. It's a little acronym where we elicit first, then we provide, and then we elicit again. So I may say in the case of talking with a client who is cutting, I may, I may first ask some of those open-ended questions like, what's problematic about this for you? Tell me more about ideas you have that might help you to stop this or what you could do instead. And then I might move into the provide part of that acronym and provide some 
information or provide my concern. I'm concerned about this. There's this resource that I would really love to give you to follow up with about that, for instance. But I don't want to forget the other end of that acronym, which is elicit again, which is like, what do you think of that? How does that land for you? What might you want to do about that? So that when we're providing information, we're not assuming that it fits the client or that, you know, like, oh, I just gave you the best piece of information and assuming they're going to take it and run with it. But we're going to check back in and say, yeah, what do you think? What do you make of that? We send questions over to our guests, you know, here's some things to prepare to talk about. And one of the questions that we had sent over to Hillary was, how has MI stayed relevant for so long? And I'm, I'm changing this question of why isn't motivational interviewing more widely used? It, it seems to be kind of, I don't know, in the second tier of theories that gets taught to a, a lot of clinicians. That's kind of like, oh, here's this thing that works. Why isn't this being more widely used in a lot of therapist education? And that is a wonderful question. I think that's a a question that the creators of MI continue to sort of ask and challenge graduate programs. Why is this not a standard? Why is this not taught as a semester course? Some do have it. I've taught it as a semester course for a college because it is so much about, I mean, the the research shows (laughs) that the attitude that we as therapists bring to our clients impact outcomes. Our ability to demonstrate empathy and to collaborate and to be genuine and to evoke and draw forth them really impacts outcomes. So why are we not teaching these skills that are embedded in learning motivational interviewing? I don't know what the answer to that is because they are available for us <laughs> to learn. You know, I'm like, here's the motivational interviewing platter. It's like an awesome buffet <laughs> to munch from. And it seems like it fits even within other theoretical orientations too. Like these seem to be some of those, you know, universal skills, you know, the unconditional positive regard, you know, is not mm-hmm. just limited to humanistic type therapies. It's, these seem to be skills that are used a lot. And, you know, my first experience with a lot of motivational interviewing was working with substance abuse, where I know that this is mm-hmm. widely used in my practicum. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a couple of things where MI is not necessarily the best thing, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know, some of those things where people don't recognize that they have problems. But this does seem to be such a core set of skills that I think just get bypassed in in getting taught. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's a piece of what kind of we know we go through school and we learn some skills and then we hit the rubber meets the road (laughs) and we're out there working with people. And we're like, how do I become more effective working with the clients that I'm working with? And that was my personal and my story was, you know, I finished grad school. I feel like literally I've got all these tools in this like backpack on my back. I've got all these tools. I'm like ready to help people, you know, woohoo. And, and then I'm face to face with clients who say they want help. I have services that are going to help them, but they're not following through with those plans. And I felt such tremendous frustration and even sometimes resentment, right? <laughs> like, yeah. w- what's the problem here? But I didn't have the tools. You know, graduate school didn't teach me everything that I needed to know about how to be with clients, how to talk with clients. And at its essence, motivational interviewing is a conversation style. 
It's not a modality. It's not a skill set. There are skills within it, but it's a way of talking with people. It is a way of being with people. And I took my first MI training and which typically kind of a typical intro is usually like 10 to 12 hours of training. And that, that first MI training, I felt this physical shift of this burden of responsibility of me knowing the answers and me having the tools, you know, in, on my shoulders. So this recognition that my task is to walk with clients and believe that they have the tools or can acquire the tools when they're ready and to draw those forth. And so it was this lightning of responsibility that's like, oh, I don't have to know it all. I don't have to be so prepared with all of the ideas and motivations for and skills for people. I need to first join with and be and believe and draw forth, you know, using these or skills and some other specific things that kind of help people connect more deeply to their motivation for change. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I'm hearing a few things in this because I think being able to really walk with, I really like that image. When we're looking at walking with, I think there's a an inherent trust that the client will get to what's best for them, mm-hmm. that they will come to with appropriate guidance, support, whatever it is to the change that should, could, needs to, whatever the right phrase is to be made, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things like our own bias, our own idea around what is health, what is right for people, all of those things that we bring to the table. And a million years ago, when I had that very short lunch and learn, it seemed like MI was a way to get people to believe that the change we want them to make is in their best interest. Mm. And, you know, it was like, okay, this is how you frame it, like tie the change you want them to make with another change that they want to make and figure out their motivation that will get them to do the change you want to make. Clearly, it was not a great training because they didn't tell me that the stages of change <laughs> were not MI. So, but. But it was interesting because it kind of, it felt in some ways manipulative, but the way you're describing it feels not that. It feels like yes. I am here, I'm trusting my client, I'm walking with them, and I'm using my clinical skills to help them to move towards where they want to go. Mm-hmm. But it, for me, there is that piece of the guiding type of conversation where you are leading them toward a change that you believe is in their best interest. So how do you mm-hmm. hold that tension 
of not guiding them towards a change that may not be in their best interest. I mean, especially if they have different perspectives or different lived experience than you, like you may not know what their best interest is. So how do you hold that tension of health? And this is what society says is in your best interest and the client, like, how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you hold that? That is such a wonderful question because you named the tension that is one of the misconceptions of MI, which is that it's manipulative and it gets people to do what you want them to do. And that is not motivational being. That's that's <laughs> sales, <laughs> potentially, right? <laughs> right. And when we look back at the spirit of motivational interviewing, this domain of compassion, which is that we are always working in the best interest of the client is the foundational component. So it's not about what I want them to do. It's about what is in their best interest. And most of the time we can agree with a client on what that is, you know, through some exploration, like, okay, somebody who's cutting wants to stop cutting. Somebody who's misusing alcohol wants to get that under control or stop, right? So I'll name two pieces. One is this foundational piece of compassion helps keep the client's best interest at the forefront. The second is motivational interviewing has four processes. So kind of like the stages of change, the four processes are linear, but also recursive. Sometimes we have to revisit sort of the sure. a previous process. And those four processes are engagement. So we first must engage and develop rapport with clients, connect. The second process is focusing. What is that target for change? that that person wants to make. The third process is evoking. Why do they want to make this change? What are their values? What are their strengths? What is, you know, building their why? And then that fourth process is planning. That's the how. How do we get there? How do we help you get to this change? We are doing MI when we are staying in that spirit that we've talked about using the OR skills through engagement, through focusing, and through evoking those first three processes. That's doing MI. Now, your question speaks to the second process, the focusing process. And that is another kind of misconception of MI is, oh, we can use MI all the time with anything or to get them to do what we want them to do. But the focusing process really clearly defines what is it that the client is willing to talk about or willing to consider change around. We're bringing our expertise in it. We're evoking their expertise and we're helping to discern the direction of the conversation. It lands really well. Mm-hmm. I still think that there is the possibility, and Kurt will say that, well, there's always a possibility for bad therapy. But I think there's still the possibility if someone has unchecked bias or unchecked stuff that they bring in, that that focusing process could be fairly manipulative. But I think true MI, good MI is let's focus and really see where the client is and meet them where they mm-hmm. are and, and bring our expertise in to that to, to help mm-hmm. them provide that information that may or may not land with them, but then pull back out and really rely on the client. I I really like that. I think it's just something where oftentimes I get caught in wanting to tell my clients what to do. And, you know. (laughs) So, so much so, right? And and when we do let that writing reflex take over or we give advice or we're just moving out of MI into other or other styles of communication, which can come from a place of compassion and knowledge and all of those other good things. So it's, it's not that it's bad to not be doing MI. It's, we're just shifting, you know, this is a part of, as we're developing as clinicians that we have lots of tools in our tool belt and, and back to Kurt's question earlier, like, why is MI kind of not everywhere? Why is it everybody not learning it? That, 
that's a great question because it's a great tool really for anyone to have, not just therapists, but anyone who's helping people with change. Anybody who's working with clients who are struggling with ambivalence that are wanting to change. And motivational interviewing, it, it started an addiction, but it has in so many fields now. I, I recently went to a trainer where I listened to, you know, participated in breakouts on am I in work with offenders? Am I in education? Am I in child welfare? Am I in suicide prevention? Am I in health coaching? I mean, it's it's well, it's everywhere, it, just not as as much with therapists. <laughs> why have what? Yeah, what what's what's happening there? <laughs> well, and even beyond the helping field, some of the better uses, and I love how you frame this as a communication technique. Some of the best application of this is salespeople that mm -hmm. are you know kind of that communication style of you know it, they know that the hard sell on things isn't going to work but it's being able to bring it in and so there are even people outside of our field who utilize it a lot better than us well said yeah i remember i still this example sticks out from a training early on i had some people who were former military and in a training and several of them had worked in interrogations and as I was going through these skills, you know, and, and helping to teach each, each of the ORS skills, they were like, yeah, this is the stuff we learned in interrogations. And I was like, oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. And some people in sales will also speak to some of these techniques as like helpful to get people to kind of motivate to do something. And that's, again, where I fall back to that such essential piece of the spirit of MI, which is the compassion, the best interest of the client, not the best interest of my wallet <laughs> or the best interest of my organization numbers <laughs> or the best interest of my spiritual beliefs, but the best interest of the client. The client. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So clearly there is more to learn. <laughs> what should clinicians interested in learning MI look for in training or, or what are the, what are the trainings that you might recommend that people take? Definitely. Yeah. Well, um, the metaphor learning to ride the bike is sometimes used in talking about MI. So we don't teach people how to ride a bike by talking about it and describing it and showing slides about how to ride a bike. We do it through experiential practice. You really can't really get that concept of balance until you're trying to balance. And so what I would look for in a training is experiential an experiential component where you're getting to practice the skills with others, getting feedback from a trainer um, in that in that process. Um, and and the motivationalinterviewing.org website lists all the trainer trainings provided by Mint trainers, members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. If people are interested in reaching out to you, where can people find you? My website is bolterconsulting.com. And I have, I'm on Instagram, Hillary Bolter. And I also have a private Facebook group where I am really active in helping people in their MI learning journey. And I also created a code for your listeners for a foundations cool. of, yeah, for a foundations of MI course, a 10% off. So I will give that to you all. So we'll put that in the show notes for folks that don't always get to our show notes. How might they access yes. that special offer? So Modern Therapist Survival Guide, MTSG, that is the coupon code that we're using. MTSG is a coupon code. And where what's the website where they can access that training? It's bolterconsulting.com, B-O-L-T-E-R. <laughs> All right. 
we'll put that in the show notes. And you can find our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com and check out the Therapy Reimagined conference and all of our latest updates on that. Things are changing as the world opens back up and we're part of that process. And so I'm not going to commit to what our changes are at this moment because the website's (laughs) easier to update than traveling back in time and changing published podcasts. So check out therapyreimaginedconference.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Verdoy and Hilary Bolter. Thanks to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, use promo code MODERN for two free months. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.